you there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll turn there in just a moment. Our, our brother Dan, I know with the timing of everything, um, not able to have a memorial service right now. He was buried on Thursday in the Corn Cemetery right here next to the church, and Lord willing, there will be a memorial service later, and uh, when, when that can, can happen, and so we'll keep you updated on that. Uh, I know we all have a lot of memories of Dan, those that have been here a long time. I, I have uh, several really fun ones. One of those was uh, early on, when, uh, not long after I had come to, to Baraka, and, uh, 18 years ago, um, and Howard and Dan and I took a trip out to California to go to a shepherd's conference, and so... Uh, Dan was an elder at the time here, and so uh, we, we, we made this trip out there, and uh, I didn't really know him that well uh, up until that point, but when you travel with somebody, when you live with somebody for a week, you really get to, get to know them in, in a lot better way. Oh, you already threw the picture up here. Yeah, yeah, good. Uh, so uh, we were cleaning out the attic this week, and I, I came across this uh, photo, and it was his idea, let me assure you, to take this photo. We were a little seaside... Uh, fish restaurant right there near Santa Barbara, and, uh, and he said, Justin, get over here. Of course, he made me be the girl, so, <laughs> which if you, if you knew Dan well, you always felt like a little bit of a dainty girl next to him anyway, with his big old, you know, he's a big muscular guy, so, uh, but anyway, I'm thankful for our dear brother. We, we had two evangelists who went home to be with the Lord this week that we know of, Ravi Zacharias, and has uh, known worldwide in his ministry. Biographies have been, will be written about this man, but uh, Dan Lee is well known to us and faithful, faithful preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ and known to this community. And they've both entered into their eternal rest and, and, and are richly rewarded by the Lord who's graciously saved them and whom they faithfully proclaimed and boldly in this life. I'll continue to pray for the family though. I want, last week we, we started in our study of this letter of 1 Corinthians and, and Paul begins, as you remember, with, a, with a, a prayer of thanksgiving for the church. And so I, I thought just for a moment we could have a little testimony time together. And so what I want you to think about is, is when you think of the church, what is a word or phrase that, that comes to mind? A, a word of, or phrase that comes out of thanksgiving. I understand there could be other words that come to mind, maybe critique or something like that, but when, it, when, it, when it's coming from a thankful heart, what's, what's a, a word or a couple words that, that come to mind? So think about that. In just a moment, I'll just have you kind of, we'll just kind of shout those out in this room. If you're on the live stream tuning in, uh, then you can, uh, you can post that in the comments. And so just uh, leave, leave, leave a little comment in there and you can join in as well. Uh, so just anybody, what, when, 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 when I think about the church with a thankful heart, this word comes to mind. Somebody give me something. Support, Support family, fellowship. fellowship, good. Service, Service. yes, good. Care, Care. absolutely. Truth. Truth, certainly. Love, good. The body, yeah. It's an image we're going to be seeing. It's good. I mean, there's, there's, there's so much that, that, that we come to. And, and, and this, the, those thoughts, and there could, we could go on and on, and there's a, a lot that, that we gather in when we think of our own experience, and we think of what the Scriptures say about the church and, and how we've, we've benefited from uh, the body of Christ. One of the things that's, that's is the connection there is he's going to 
be very concerned about the unity of this church, of the church. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Now, I'm going to say a statement now that I know is going to stun some of you, and many of you will not believe me, and you'll think this has to be made up. But the statement is this, is that we live in a world that's actually very fractured and divided. I know, gasp, all the air just went out of the room. Uh, you, you, you can't believe that, right? No, you, 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 it, it seems like everyone everywhere gets along all the time, right? That's how it seems. We, we don't really ever see or, or hear about, directly anyway, any kind of open conflicts, do we? Uh, we, we, it's certainly not, it's not disagreements, it's not divisions, those aren't the kinds of things that ever show up on our social media feed or ever make the news headlines, because that's not really newsworthy. No, never. There are, but, but there are, brothers and sisters, actually people and groups of people who don't get along with one another. It's hard to believe, but it's true. Now, I hope you can pick up on my sarcasm. If not, you've been in quarantine too long or something. <laughs> Um, breathing too much CO2 through that mask, I don't know, but, um, no, there are old, old, deep fault lines that run throughout the world of race and class and gender and religion and politics and culture and, and on and on and on, and there are thousands of other, other smaller cracks that are emerging all of the time and fracturing us as people, as, a, as societies, between individuals, between nations, in very local ways, in our community, in your neighborhood, in this, in this city, and in around the world. Some conflicts result in bloodshed, some in tweet storms, and, and so we, but there is conflict everywhere. You just take this COVID-19 and, and all the bickering and barking that's going on among politicians and all the protest and the counter-protest and all the threats, all the name-calling, camps formed, hashtags are going viral, you know, just stay home or in the lockdown and masks and social distancing and reopening of churches. I mean, all of these things, there's division, there's disagreement, there's conflict. But sadly, not surprisingly, but sadly, the, the problem of division and unity isn't just something that occasionally rears its ugly head out there. It is something we face in here, isn't it? In the church of Jesus Christ. The, 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 we hate can smother love in the church. Chaos can, can, can drive out peace in the body of Christ. So local churches, we can become bogged down in disagreements and disputes that can even split apart. And you've probably experienced some of these things. Many of the same fault lines that, that, that run through the wider culture run through the church, but we also have some fractures of our own making that we've kind of created, Christianized versions of those things. But one thing we can say is this, it's not new. It's not new and it's not, it's not going away. Um, in Paul's day, the church at Corinth, it, it, it was teetering on the brink of this congregational split, divorce really. And so from a distance, Paul, Paul could see these kind of structural cracks forming in the foundation of the church there in Corinth, and, and it distressed him, and he couldn't keep silent. So his response was to write this impassioned plea to these Corinthian believers to be reconciled in Jesus Christ. Excuse me, I'm going to keep doing that, so I'm going to move that. So it begins in verse 10. I appeal to you Brothers, uh, the word appeal, it's to urge, exhort. It's not, it's not like Paul's, 
you know, barking some command at them, uh, something like that, like a, like a tired, angry parent trying to break up a little sibling squabble, you know, stop arguing, just get along with one another. That's not what that word appeal means. The, the word, it, it means to call on one side, to call alongside. So Paul's not taking, to the, taking the Corinthians to the woodshed, as it were. He's, he's calling them to his side to encourage them toward toward the right path before it's too late. His, his words are motivated by genuine love and concern for this church that we talked about last week. He's thankful to God for. He's not angry. He's not frustrated. That's not what's driving him. That's why he calls them his brothers. And brothers and sisters are included in that. His words, they do carry authority. He says, he, as an apostle, he exhorts them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ but it's as if he's drawing the family together and he's this elder brother speaking to his brothers and sisters in this family meeting. And he's concerned. Because there is, remember the word we used last week, dissonance. It's a word that we might revisit throughout this series. There's relational dissonance in Corinth. There is disharmony. Not just horizontally in the fact that they're not relating well to one another, but there's a disconnect between who they are in Christ, like we talked about last week, and the way that they're relating to one another. There's dissonance. And so the the key idea this morning that I want us to unpack is, is simply this. It's looking to Christ together. Our relational dissonance can be brought back into harmony. As we look to him, look to Christ and him crucified together, or that, that relational dissonance that we all experience, it can be brought back into harmony. And so we're going to break that down, but we're going to do it in reverse order in the way that it flows to us in the text. So first, we'll see that harmony. This is the ideal that we need to embrace. Secondly, we're going to see the dissonance. This is the reality that we have to face. And then third, we'll look at Christ, who is our only hope. So let's see that. First, embrace the ideal. Embrace the ideal, this ideal of of relational harmony. Look in verse 10. Verse 10 sets the table for what's to come throughout the remainder of this letter, really, especially over the next four chapters here. And so this is the, the, through chapter 4, it's basically an elaboration of this appeal that he makes here in chapter 1, verse 10. So this is the standard. This is what God desires for his church. And it's expressed in these Three statements. Two of them are positive, one's negative. So look at he says, I appeal to you, what? One, that you all agree. Two, that there be no divisions among you. And three, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So first, we're urged to agree together. It literally means to speak the same thing, to say the same words. And so it doesn't mean that the church is made up of these verbal clones, you know, where uh, someone says, chocolate's the best, and I have to say the words, yes, chocolate's the best, gag, uh, or, um, or, or I'm not agreeing with you, and therefore we're sinning, that I'm sinning because we're not speaking the same thing. That's not what it's talking about. I know that's a very tried example, but, but, but you can see how we can maybe see it through that lens. That's not what he's saying. Look at the context, and we're going to see in verse 12 what Van read a moment ago. In contrast to those party cries where the text says they were saying, everyone was saying, I am of Paul, I am of Paulus, I am of Cephas, and so on. Here, what Paul's saying, no, you need to agree, you need to say and profess the same thing. And again, in the context, the, the, the message of that agreement, it centers on the cross. 
Christ crucified. So we, we, we are urged to agree together. Second, we're urged to eliminate divisions together. There'll be no divisions. The Greek word schismata. We hear that word schisms or even our English word scissors. It means to, to tear, to cut, pull apart. In, in the Gospels, it's used of the tearing of a, of a garment. And so here, we're not to tear the church apart into smaller pieces. It's to be kept whole. And then third, that the, the, we're urged to mend our minds together. Mend our minds together, to be united. This is the idea of putting something uh, back together in order that's fallen into disarray. It was actually used of like mending fishing nets. So if divisions is being torn apart, mending, it's, it's putting it back together, it's restoring it. And so Paul left the Corinthian community there when he went on from there in a relatively harmonious uh, place. And now it's fallen into, into disarray and it's being ripped apart. And so he's, he's urging them to be restored. And so, and it's not just surface, it's, it's not just superficial kind of unity that he's, it's, it's deep, it's, it's not external conformity. He says you need to be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Think the same things. You need to have the same outlook on, on things. So what he's setting before us here, verse 10, again, he's going to unpack this throughout the remainder of this letter. This is, this is the ideal. This is what we're aiming for. This is what we have to embrace. This is God's desire for his church. He's not holding up this as a measuring stick so we can, you know, stand on our little judgment seat and, and, and critique the church and say, well, their church doesn't have perfect harmony. I need to find somewhere else that does. That's not what it. He doesn't tell them to look for a church that's, that's better, more unified church. That's not his point. No church in this fallen world will be perfect in harmony, will not know anything of relational dissonance. There will be disagreement and conflict. And he's, and he's not raising the standard so he can rub it in their faces and say, look how, what, what a bunch of knuckleheads you are. It's not his point. He's, he's raising this bar, and it's one that we can't reach on our own. We need help. We need, to, we need Christ. And this is what he's driving us toward. And we're, I'm getting ahead of myself, but this is it. So the answer, though, it's not to lower the standard. No, we embrace this ideal, and then we face the reality, and that's the second point. Now, quickly before we move on to that point, I just want to caution you from taking this verse to some extreme. Um, he's not talking about complete uniformity in the church here. That's not the ideal, where everybody looks alike, dresses alike, listens to the same music, you know, has the same accent and everything like that. No, that's going to be very clear throughout this letter. There is, the, 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 this, this, this church is, is wonderfully made up of people with differently informed consciences and different cultures and different gifts. And this is the beauty of the body of Christ. God never intended for the church to reflect some kind of rigid uniformity. No, the goal is, is unity, not uniformity. That's very different. We, we, we don't live in unison with one another. We're not all 
uh, playing the same tone. We, we, we live in harmony with one another, this variety of compatible tones. And so we're not, we're not all playing the same instrument and the same note at the same time. No, it's like an orchestra, the church, and have beautiful different instruments, different notes, different, but they're, they're in harmony with one another. That's, what, that's the vision that, for the church that's going to be unfolded in this letter. And so that's what reflects most the power and the grace and the glory of God in the church. But that, so there's the ideal. There's the beautiful ideal, God's desire that we're aiming for, and then there's reality. <laughs> then there's the church. And so that's the second thing. We, 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 we face reality. And the reality is that there is relational dissonance. There is disharmony. And we see this in verse 11 and 12. So Paul gets word in verse 11 from some of Chloe's people. Uh, about the Corinthian church. We don't know who Chloe is. We know who Chloe Haddon is, but we don't know who this Chloe is. Uh, someone that was known to the Corinthians for sure. So they knew this, this woman, probably an influential business lady that had, that had affairs there in Corinth. And so, but her, her people, her family, her employees, her servants, we're not exactly sure. But they bring this report to Paul, and it's not pretty. It's not. Look at verse 11. For, for it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is, there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Quarreling. You hear it. Strife. It's fighting. Arguing. These aren't not just, the word's not just for like minor disagreements, but, but open conflicts. There's quarreling. And, and he gets very specific about what he means. Verse 12. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So it's it's not an isolated incident or two. It's not just like these two people can't get along. No, most people in the church are involved in one way or another. He says, each one of you says something like this, some variation of this. So the church is dividing it up into all these different groups. You have these little parties that, that are identifying themselves with certain leaders in the church. And it's, it's ugly. And so we, we can't be certain what the, you know, what the lines of demarcation were between these different groups of people and exactly what the issues were that they identified with these leaders. I, I mean, there's a lot of ink spilt trying to say this is exactly what the Paul party was like and that kind of thing. But... but it doesn't seem to be a theological fight. I mean, Paul, would have, Paul, Paul, Paul probably would have had something to say in this letter if that was really the, the issue with, with these other names and people. That's not it. it, it it's, it's unlikely that the names that are mentioned, that those people are really involved in trying to draw people after themselves. But all we can say is what the text says. There's at least two marks of this rift that are evident. One, it involves personalities. And two, it involves pride. And so we see the, the personality. There are people lining up between these different, different people. Uh, again, I, it, we, we can, it's speculation to say exactly was, you know, the Paul, Paul party where they like the old guard. You know, here's this founding apostle. And, and they, they, they wanted to line up behind him. And Apollos, we know, is this, you know, this uh, kind of dynamic preacher, the young preacher. And so maybe they're like downloading his sermons and posting them on social media and say, He's, he's, he's everything, and I, we don't know, uh, but, but, but there, there are these divisions, and of course, you have the Christ faction, are they like saying no creed but Christ, and you know, we don't want any other teachers, we just have Jesus, and that's enough for us, and thought there was, I, we don't really know, 
exactly the, the essence of what we're saying. If, if it was important for us to know, we would have been told by Paul. But whatever it was, there, there are these arguments and they're simmering and they're brewing along all these different lines of people who just say to us, there, there, are, there are personality fault lines that can still run through the church today, can't they? Um, Christians can line up behind their favorite teacher, preacher, Christian writer, author, pastor, um, and, and, the, and these men can get used, oftentimes unknowingly, uh, to divide and separate people. Um, it can happen in a very local way within the church. I've seen this, where one elder or one teacher, or in the Sunday school teacher, or one, one of the pastors becomes kind of the standard and everyone else is measured up to that person and how, what, what would they say? How would they interpret this passage? How would they act in this situation? And so you have people that start lining up in different camps within the church. So that's one way. It could even be in our day looking for those outside of our church, your favorite Bible teacher and preacher. Nothing wrong to having people that you listen to on podcasts. and teachers, But it, it can be, there can be a version of this. I am of John Piper. I am of John MacArthur. I am of... R.C. Sproul or Tim Keller, Matt Chandler, whatever it is. And, and, and that can be your identity. I mean, there have been, I, there, this is years ago, and uh, this person's long gone, but I, I can remember somebody coming. And this was one of the first conversations that I had with this person that was visiting the church. He wanted to know if this particular evangelist that was very popular on YouTube, if we were fully behind their ministry. I mean, this was like a question that, and, and I said, you know, there's, I, I can appreciate what he's doing, and I kind of gave a nuanced answer. That was not enough. I mean, it was clear. Like, if you're not signing on right now, that's it. And I'm like, red flag, red flag, red flag. And because that kind of attitude, it, it can tear apart a church, personality. It can, it can cause rifts. But there's something deeper than that. There's something behind and underneath kind of the cult of personality. That's not all it is. There, there's something else that each one of these statements has in common, isn't it? It's not just that there's a name, a personality. It's the word I. I. I follow Paul. I, I, I. It's not really about Paul. It's not about Apollos or Cephas. It's certainly not about Jesus with this group. It's, it's, it's about pride. They're just attaching their names to their chosen leaders and, 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 and so that they can get something from that identification. The emphasis is on I. Look at me. Look who I follow. Look who I'm part of. They're saying I am of blank, so that makes me better than you. That's what's, what's happening there. So behind this kind of cult of personality is this, is this cult of personal pride, and it'll tear a church apart. It can cause groups to form, little cliques. And they, people begin to take sides. And it breeds judgmental, judgmentalism towards people as, as you kind of have your group and then you're looking on others and down upon others who are different. It fuels suspicion of other people, especially those we disagree with. It, it, secret meetings and side conversations start happening and, and gossip and slander kind of characterize those conversations. And, and before long, disagreements turn into very personal attacks and those personal attacks leave wounds that don't heal easily and then there's retaliation for those personal attacks and you see this vicious vicious cycle that can happen in a church in churches and it's not hypothetical is it 
You've probably, if you've been a Christian for any time and have been part of churches, you've, you've seen churches that have been really deeply impacted by conflict. By God's grace, I don't sense a party spirit at Baraka in, in, in this very overt way, but please, brothers and sisters, let's have the humility to say that the seed of schism lies within this church. And so the same pride, the same temptations that they face, we face, brothers and sisters, and we are not immune from this. And so, so maybe the divisions won't be as people-oriented as they were in Corinth. I would say oftentimes today it, it falls along the lines of issues. So we have issues, and the, the fault lines kind of run that direction. And, and I realize some issues are kind of straight-line issues. The Bible has spoken very clearly, and, and the position that we hold should be one we hold together. But I would say most issues that Christians divide over are not straight-line issues. They're very jagged lines, and they're important issues, and they require biblical wisdom, and the Bible has much to say, and, but, but we can end up in different places, at different times, and different levels of maturity, and, and so, but these can, these, can, these can tear churches apart. It could be everything from political issues, social issues, and how we engage in them, and schooling choices, and worship music preferences. I mean, all, the list goes on and on. There's no end to the potential. But, but th- th- this can tear a church to shreds. So what I would just say, whenever we see tears, however small they seem, in, in the fabric of congregational life, these words from the Apostle Paul to this church at Corinth should come flooding into our minds. And, and, and what it should do is it should drive us to Christ together. And that's my prayer for this morning. It's how I've been praying for us this week. That, 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 and that brings us to the real crux of the passage, which is the crux. It's the cross of the cross of Christ. And remember we said at the beginning of this letter, Paul wants us to think about every issue of life through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of Christ crucified. And that is the case with our conflicts too. And so he doesn't just say, church, get along for crying out loud. Just just work harder at smiling, being nice to each other. Everybody act like you work at Chick-fil-A and it will just be wonderful. Uh, That's not what he says. What does he say to them? He says, church, look to Christ. Look to Christ together. The gospel is what will bring that relational dissonance back into harmony. That's what he's pointing to. So third, we need to apply the only remedy. The only remedy to that dissonance, and it's looking to Jesus together. So he turns a corner in verse 13. He's, he's urged them to embrace this ideal, God's desire for the church. He set the reality of relational distance, uh, dissonance in front of them, and they need to face that. The, the reality is relationships are strained. And now he turns their gaze away from themselves and up to Christ. And he does it with these three questions in verse 13. They're rhetorical questions here. He says, is Christ divided was paul crucified for you or were you baptized into, into the name of paul now now grammatically the answers of each of these questions are assumed the, the first one is actually in the, in the greek grammar it's, it's assumed that it's a yes answer the second two are assumed no answers so he's saying is christ divided what he's saying is that this fractured church made up of all these little little groups that have uh, uh, 
you know, clinging to these different personalities. He's saying, have you divided the body of Christ up? Yes, you have. In, in other words, this one body of Christ, and that's an image he's going to develop in great detail in this letter, but this body of Christ has been fragmented into all these special interest groups. He's saying, is Christ divided? He is among you. Was Paul crucified for you? Now this is an adamant, of course not, that's crazy. I mean, the church's life there, our very existence is owed to one event, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul, Paul's going to expound upon this in the next paragraph here. But, it, but Christ is everything. It's, him, it's to him we owe our life for salvation. To him we owe the church. And then he says, third, were you baptized into the name of Paul? Again, of course not, that's crazy. Because Christ is the one who died for our salvation. It's, it's, it's our identification with him that matters. And that's what baptism is, is communicating. So it's into his name that we're baptized. Christ's name, no one else's. So again, the, the whole point of these questions is to kind of lovingly put his hands on the shoulders and, and redirect their gaze away from themselves and their pride, away from, from the people that their favorite leaders, away from their disagreements and direct them to Christ. That's what he's doing. When he's kept in focus, our, our little petty rivalries will, will dissolve and our, our arguments will, will be neutralized. So the, the, these questions are, are somewhat intended to, to make our disputes, our disagreements seem rather ridiculous. That's what he's doing with these. So we fight this division with this greater awareness of who Christ is, what he's done for us, and therefore who we are in him. That's what he's driving at. Now listen, I'm not trying to make this sound simplistic. I, believe me, conflicts... Um, uh, tensions in the church, disagreements, they can be very complicated matters, really real division in a church. It takes loads of humble effort, prayer, counsel, encouragement, patience, time. Um, it involves repentance. It involves oftentimes restitution. And, and Paul's going to deal with some of those things in the coming chapters here. But it is futile for us to think that peacemaking True peacemaking can happen in the church apart from Christ and a laser-like focus upon the gospel. There's no other way. And so, so I'm not saying it's, a, it's like a pill you take and it's all, everybody just gets along. That's not it at all. But there's, it's hopeless apart from this being the shared conviction. We're going to look to Jesus together. And there's wonderful hope, though, when we do that. And we can, churches can work through uh, through conflicts marvelously so then Paul gets personal so he's thinking about his own ministry there in Corinth and maybe he's addressing some of the I am of Paul crowd here real quickly verse 14 he says I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius now that may sound a little harsh when you first read that I'm glad sure glad I didn't baptize any of you knuckleheads uh that's not what he's saying he's just saying it's just providential Yes, I baptized a few people early on, but that was not my main focus. Other people did the baptizing, and I'm kind of thankful that that's the case because I don't want anyone to say that they were baptized in my name. And, that's, and then Paul has this little afterthought. He's like, you know what? Wait a second. I think there was somebody else. And in, in verse 16, I did also baptize the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I can't remember. I don't remember if there was anybody else. And so he, he's, just, he's not keeping track. 
It doesn't matter who baptized whom. The, the, the baptism, baptism doesn't create some special bond of allegiance with the baptizer, if that's even a word. Uh, that's, that's crazy. And then he gives his conclusion in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So baptism, it's important for Paul. He's not downplaying or minimizing its importance. It's part of the Great Commission. But his calling, the reason Christ sent him, is, is to herald this good news of Jesus Christ. And that's even what baptize, baptism is, is holding up. To preach to the lost so that they might be saved. To preach to the saved so that they can see that Christ is their only hope and help. So the message of the cross of Christ, he says this here, it has power. The gospel is powerful. He doesn't want to preach in a way that it loses its power, which is saying it has power. Do you understand that? Do you deeply believe that, church? Are you fully persuaded that the gospel of Jesus Christ, when proclaimed, has this God-backed power to, to change, to transform, to give life, to help you, Christian? It's a living, active, creating word. It is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, Romans 6, 1, 16. God is at work in, through his word, through the proclaimed message of Christ and him crucified. And that's where, that's going to be the transition then into verse 18, where we'll see next week. But again, Paul's point here in, in, in saying this, he wants, to, he, he wants to do everything he can to weld the attention of this church to Jesus Christ. He is distancing himself. He is, he is like John the Baptist. He must increase, I must decrease. There's an there's a 18th century bishop of, uh, in the Moravian church, uh, Count Zinzendorf. There's a good name for you. Um, but he, he is quote, famous for these, these words. He's these are words that he were quoted as he was uh, sending out missionaries in the 18th century. And he said, his words to these missionaries were this, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. And, and his point was just simply, don't care about being remembered. That's not the point of your life. The, the point of your life is singular. It's to point people to Christ. I mean, I think of our brother Dan Lee. I mean, this is, this is he, we, we, will, we do remember him, and he's left a huge wake in his, in his absence here. But we remember him because he wasn't living to be remembered. He was living to be forgotten. He was living to point people to Jesus Christ. And this should be our aim. This is what Paul sang. And so he's saying, and, and, and the reason this is so important for us, even as Christians, as a church, is because as we let the good news of Jesus and what he's done for us fill our gaze and, and, and our pride will shrivel and our divisions will crumble. Because at the foot of the cross we find level ground. Level ground. We, we, we stand there before the cross and we look at Jesus bearing all of the condemnation that we deserve and, and, and we see that we are, all of us, helpless, hopeless, apart from God's sovereign mercy. We are on level ground before the cross. Wretched sinners deserving nothing but God's furious wrath. We have nothing to boast 
about in ourselves there. And what? Then we look at Jesus. We look at him and we see him in love pouring himself out to us, for us. Because he did, we are saved. He's done it all. We, and we cannot then glory in ourselves. And so at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. I am not better than you. And you are not better than me. And so as our gaze is filled with Jesus and him crucified, our, our egos die. Our relational dissonance, it, it, it begins to come back into harmony. That's, that's the vision that Paul's setting for us right here at the beginning. It's not a vision of, of the church kind of growing in this soil, this really shallow soil of you know, tolerance or expediency. It is deep, profound unity that only comes as we together look to Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, I, I want to encourage you. I know it's, a, it's kind of a heavy, uh, heavy passage to jump into here today. Don't walk away downcast or, oh, man, it's just, church is just a mess. Uh, you know, uh, conflict's going to always be around and you just need to get over it. No, it will go away. There will be a time when division will die and Christ, when Christ returns. And so we have that hope. Things, things that matter so much to us and that divide us right now will not matter for eternity. And so they, they will be of no consequence. And it's not because we've sorted every argument out and this is where I was right and this is where you were right. No, the judge of all the earth, he can handle that. But, but what will unite us is this greater vision, not of our pet issue, not of our preferred leader. No, it's this vision of the lamb on the throne, the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And it will unite people from every tribe, every tongue, every language group, all of those old fault lines that have broken us apart since the fall. Everybody will be gathered worshiping him. So the encouragement, I think what, what Paul's saying is, in a sense, is what, what will unite us then is what should, should unite us in time now. And so we, 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 we're looking to Christ now. This is to, to be the posture of the church. And as we do so, our relational dissonance, which, which will always be there to some degree, can be brought back into harmony. So don't despair. Don't lose hope. Don't... Uh, don't give up on the church. Don't, don't give in to bitterness and unforgiveness and think this is just how it's going to be. Let's, let our, let's set our gaze on Christ together, church. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that, that oftentimes, uh, Lord, our pride, our pride has led us to speak in a manner, to act in ways, to, to think, to harbor attitudes, to to cultivate kind of a disposition of life that's very counter to Christian unity. And so forgive us, Lord. But, but as we come back together this morning before the cross, to the foot of the cross, would, would you strip us from all of our boasting and show us the, the absolute bankruptcy of all of our claims to greatness that so often separate us from one another. Instead, just capture our hearts anew with your greatness. And with your sufficiency, Jesus Christ. Lord, you are enough. You are more than enough. You are altogether sufficient for all of our needs. And so, as we remember that, would you make us profoundly, gloriously one as we celebrate our union with Christ and our union, therefore, with each other in him. 
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a couple things before we dismiss here. Uh, I want to encourage you. I, I know that if you're like me, and I think probably you are, your inbox is flooded with emails. This is like quarantine is made for email, I think. And so I would just say that, that with the, in the absence of, of other gatherings, that is a, a primary means in which we're communicating. So just please uh, check your emails that, that regularly, and we'll, we'll, we'll have some announcements coming What's, the, what's up with the next phase for us in, in reopening. Uh, Eric knows who reads the emails, so just uh, he, he's watching you. Um, so also, next Sunday we're going to recognize, uh, as part of our service, uh, graduates, uh, high school and college graduates, so make sure you're here for that and tuning in if you're, if you're watching via live stream. And so we, we, we want to give, give recognition to them. This is an unusual year for uh, graduates, obviously. Um, all right, we're going to dismiss in just a moment. Same routine. If you're if you're new with this first time back, uh, we're we're going to just ask that uh, we we dismiss one section at a time, starting with the wall. You haven't figured this out. You're supposed to sit on that side so you can get out of here first. Uh, go out in the sweltering heat. Um, no, but we're going to we'll exit out the side doors and the back doors. Just once you exit, please move away from the doors so folks can get out. Uh, make sure all your belongings are collected because we're going to lock the doors once. Once folks are vacated and, and you won't be able to get back into this restroom either. So uh, keep that in mind. Uh, and also, just once again, please uh, really work to keep that physical distancing in mind uh, while you're outside. I, I know it's, it's, it's still a little awkward and maybe seems unnecessary to some, but it's, it's a, it is a tangible way we can love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so please keep that in mind as we gather out there. Would you stand with me? And you can remain standing until we dismiss here. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Let's sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise